For the past couple of months, we have been studying the book of Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians 1, and it has taken us some time just to get through the first 14 verses, but it's because in those first 14 verses, Paul has given us a lesson in Christian theology, basic truths of, that every Christian should know, basic truths that are the foundation of our lives that Paul provides for us in these first 14 verses. And he is, he is responding to this church, this church in Ephesus, and he's just reminding them how deep their needs were, how profound their needs were prior to knowing Christ. And he wants them to see all that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Just in verse 1, all of us are in Christ by the will of God as Paul was. Grace and peace come to the saints in verse 2. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ in verse 3. God is in His sovereign will and love chose us in Christ in verse 4. God has predestined us in Christ to something. There's a you're predestined, there's a destination. You're predestined to something, to fulfill the purposes of God. As we, we see in, in verse 6, God has adopted us in Christ to be His children. God has redeemed us in Christ through Christ's blood. God has forgiven us in Christ and given us the riches of His grace. God has shown us the mystery of God's will for us in Christ. God has made us His inheritance in Christ. God has assured us of His salvation through the promised Holy Spirit given to us in Christ. These are all of the theological truths that Paul rehearses with the Ephesians. And remember, the book of Ephesians is about the glory of Christ in the life of the church. This, there, there was a reason why we have started our church studying the book of Ephesians. It's because we desire to see the glory of Christ in the life of this church. And we want to see what that life looks like. And Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians giving us the indicatives, giving us the theological truths of all that Christ has done for us. All that God has worked in us in Jesus Christ. And he does it chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Three full chapters before he ever steps into the realm of what we do in response. Moving from the indicatives to the imperatives, the commands of Christ. How we are to live. But make no mistake about it, we do get to chapter 4 and Paul wants us to know how we are to live in Christ. And so as, as we're studying, let's not forget this banner, this theme of the glory of Christ in the life of the church. That when we step in here on Sunday mornings, we want to see the glory of Christ. Whether it's through our praise and singing, whether it's through the preaching of God's Word, or whether it's through the time that you take to pray for one another, for those who are struggling with fear, or the time you take to encourage one another when they walk in Sunday morning 
And they may be dealing with a distraction or a discouragement. That is where the glory of Christ is revealed in the life of the church. And we see it when those who don't know Christ come into this room and they encounter you. And you tell them about your life in Christ. That's what this church is about. It's about the glory of Christ revealed in the life of Grace Church. God, God is doing so much. Paul is praising God for the salvation that he's authored in his sovereignty. And he, he is wanting us to be men and women of praise. And, and as we study the first 14 verses, it was three times, four times actually in, in verse 3, blessed be the God, or Scripture, other passages, translations would say, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then again, he goes on to the praise of His glorious grace in verse 12. And then finally, in verse 14, to the praise of His glory. It was, Paul is, is instructing these dear saints, this is what it means that we are men and women of praise. Praise for all that God has done. Praise for these wonderful theological truths that, that God has, has done in our lives. This, this, should, this should move you. It should change you. And it's, it's understandable when, when these passages are read, it's just, yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Tell me something new. But you know what? The gospel story is the same story over and over and over again. And there isn't going to be a Sunday morning when I stand up here or Joe or Mickey, or John Loftness, or Bob Donahue, or C.J. Mahaney. There isn't going to be a Sunday morning where a man stands up here and preaches God's Word that you're going to hear anything new. You're going to hear the same old gospel story again and again and again. And maybe, Lord willing, bit by bit, <clears throat> little by little, it soaks in. And it sinks in. And one day it takes such deep root. You can't help but think regularly about the gospel story. And I know that's your heart. I know that's your passion. It's why you're here. But it's easy to become anesthetized to the gospel story. To be a bit numb to it. And that's why Paul, to an Ephesian church who knows the gospel story, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. Do you think he didn't tell them the gospel story over and over again? And yet, when he's departed from them, and he's in prison, and he writes this letter, what does he do? He tells them the same story over again, so that their hearts would sing in praise to God. But then he goes on. And look at verse 15, which is our passage this morning. <clears throat> Paul moves from praise 
to prayer. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, Lord, we, we just simply ask that you would enlighten our hearts this morning. Lord, we ask that you would, through your infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient, all-powerful, glorious scriptures, Lord, would you enlighten our hearts this morning? Would you give every person here a spirit of wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of God. And Lord, help me. Help me to speak in such a way that keeps true to your word and serves and blesses your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's my proposition for you this morning. We should thank God in prayer because He knows us. And we should petition God in prayer that we might know Him and desire to know Him more. We should thank God in prayer because He knows us. Not that He knows about us, but He knows us personally. And we should petition God in prayer that we might know Him and that we might desire to know Him more. Two main points this morning, prayers of thankfulness and prayers of of petition. And the first one, prayers of thankfulness. We should thank God in prayer because He knows us. That's why Paul is writing in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is getting reports about the Ephesian church, reports from others who are telling Paul about the Ephesian church's faith in God and their love for all the saints. And his response to these great reports is to thank God. It's to thank God and and. I find it unique as we we happen to be in this passage. I get regular reports from... I was with Mickey Conley down in Charlotte this past week and and Joe was here and, and Joe comes back and what does he do? He says, oh, 
I just want to tell you what a great church that is. They're just, and he was just singing, he was singing about what God had done among us. He was excited about what God had done in this group of people. And so Mickey's just telling me about this. And he's saying, Larry, I just want you to know we're continuing to pray for you. We're just so grateful to God for what he's done at Grace Church. And that's what Paul is, is doing here. He's thanking not the Ephesians. He's thanking God for what he's done in the Ephesians. A divine work has taken place in their lives and it's for this reason that these first 14 verses, that is for this reason, for all that God has done, all of these theological truths, what all that God has accomplished in you, my dear brothers and sisters, those whom I labored among for three years, God has done all these things. And so it's for this reason that I now see that what God has done in you is genuine. Your salvation is real. How do I know it's real? Because you, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 15, and, and I've heard of your love toward all the saints. He, he said, listen, you have passed the, sal- you've passed the test or the acid test. You know where the idea of the acid test came from? The acid test came from back in the, in the um, Middle Ages when, when people would, would bring gold and the chemists would want to know if the gold is real. All base metals melt when, when poured on by nitric acid, except for gold. So that's how they came up with the acid test. They wanted to know the genuineness, the purity of the gold. They would pour it on the metal. And if it melted, it wasn't really gold. And this is the acid test here. What, what's going on? Well, all of, these, all of these truths in the first 14 verses, they're taking place. There is faith in God and there is love for all the saints. Now, it's, I mean, it's unique to me in, when Paul says your love for all the saints. Look back at the, the previous verses where Paul has talked about this mystery of the gospel that not only have the Jews come to Christ, but the Gentiles as well. And they have become God's inheritance, one inheritance. They are all God's heritage. They are all one nation. They are all one people. They are now one church, one body. Christ is the head of that body. And so for Paul to say your love for the saints, he's referring back to Jew and Gentile coming together where previously they were enemies of one another. Hating and being hated. And now in Christ, having faith in God, they have love for all the saints. The, the barriers, the walls of hostility are broken down. That's the church. Anybody can walk in here. Anybody can sit in this room and can feel loved. Especially those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is, is expressing 
is exploding here in this prayer. This is what's happened. These wonderful things have, have happened. God has transformed their lives and he does not cease giving thanks for them. So we read in verse 16. And the question here is, do, do we pray like this? Do we pray like Paul? Do we regularly thank God? Paul, Paul writes here, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Do, do you. do you regularly pray and give thanks for the men and women in this church? Do you pray and regularly give thanks for this old gospel story that has transformed your life? What do you regularly thank God for? Your election, your salvation, your redemption, your forgiveness, your adoption, your predestination, how He uses you, how He uses others in your life for your future. What does your faith in God and love for the saints look like? Would Paul be giving thanks for that in you? It's a good question to ask. We should be thanking God in prayer because we are known by God. We are known by God. And to be known by God means that we are God's. We belong to Him. And secondly, Paul talks about prayers of petition. We should petition God in prayer because we know Him and desire to know Him, know him more. And Verse 17, Paul writes that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Let's first understand that when we pray, we are addressing the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, who sent Jesus to be our substitute. That who, that's who we're addressing. We're addressing the one who, who sent Christ into our humanity, to bear our sins, to live among us. We are, we are addressing the one who is called the Father of glory. We are addressing the one who is the creator of the universe. We are addressing the one who we can address because Christ has come and broken down the barrier that was between us and God. That is the one that we can petition. Paul wants us to thank God, but he also wants us to petition God. And to petition Him for a very specific and purposeful thing. Paul wants us to petition God for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul is thrilled with the Ephesians' demonstration of faith, that they have faith in God and they have love towards all the saints. But he wants more for them. He wants them to understand who God is and they, he wants them to know God. And that word know is rich in meaning, to have a knowledge of God. Not about God, but of God. A number of years ago, I think it was about eight or nine years ago, I was on a trip to India, and uh, one of the airlines, Indian Airlines, is 
if, if you don't mind flying Indian Airlines, you don't mind the duct tape that holds up certain parts of the plane. Um, I was flying from New York. It was a 16-hour flight, and I had gotten bumped up into first class, which was great for a 16-hour flight. So I'm, I get on the flight, and uh, I'm sitting in my seat, and this couple walks in, and uh, African-American couple, and I noticed the guy right away. He's about 6'5", 250 pounds, and I'm thinking, he's an NFLer. He plays in the NFL. He's, that's why he's sitting in first class, and he's just, there's something about him. You just know an athlete when you see him, and, and I'm just thinking, who did he play for? Where have I seen him? And so he's kind of glaring at me as I'm looking at him. And they sit just a couple of seats over, he, he and his girlfriend. And, and so the whole trip, 16 hours, every so often, I'm just kind of glancing over, who is that guy? I just can't, just can't think about who it is. And so when we, we finally arrive in India, when you arrive in India, the international flights all arrive around midnight to 1 a.m. in the morning. And it's, it's India. So when, when you go outside, there's literally, because all the international flights come in, all the families are waiting. There's typically two to 3,000 people waiting outside, screaming, and there's placards with people's names on them. And, and all the hotels, there's probably, I mean, there's hundreds of hotels in Bombay, which is where we land. And so they hold these placards up, and, and they have the name on them. And if you don't have a hotel, or, or if you just want to go to a certain hotel, you scream out the name. And there's a hotel that I stay out called the Leela. So when I would go outside, I would just scream, Leela, Leela. And, and the, one of the drivers would come running up and grab my bag and pull me through the thousands. And so as we go through customs, I notice that this couple go through a special customs line. So I say, yes, that's exactly right. He is in it. He is, he is famous. I know this guy is famous. I'm going to figure out who he is. And so they get through customs. And, and so I'm outside and I'm screaming Leela and I see this crowd and there's photographers and there's all this screaming. And and so I, I hear this screaming and I'm thinking, ah, he is famous because they're taking pictures. And I hear this screaming going, Beyonce, Beyonce. And I'm thinking, I, I never heard of the hotel Beyonce. And so, so, I, so I, I, I go to my hotel and I get home and I'm telling the kids. I'm saying, when I get home, I'm telling my kids, yeah, I, I'd never heard of the hotel Beyonce in, in, in India. And, and they said, Dad, you don't know who Beyonce is? <laughs> no, I mean, I sat next to her for 16 hours on a plane, but, but who is she? And, and they had to... So for the next six months, every time Beyonce showed up on television, my kids would grab me by the face and say, Dad, that's Beyonce right there. I didn't... I had no clue who she was. I didn't... I didn't know. There was no knowledge... It was just, it, it was, so what? What's a Beyonce? I, I didn't know. I mean, that's, that's what it was to me. But listen, as ignorant as I was there in the knowledge of who this person was, we are not ignorant in the knowledge of God. We know God. We know God because we have faith in God. We know God because we've proven it by our love for the saints. We know God because of all of the things that God has chosen us and adopted us and redeemed us and forgiven us. And Paul is saying, I know you know God, but here's what I want. After three years of being with you, I am writing this letter to you and here's what I'm praying. 
not only am I ceasing to give thanks, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I want you to have a spirit of wisdom. And I want you to have a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of God. Paul's saying, I want you to know God. I want you to know him more. How well do you know him now? I know you know him. You're here this morning. But I want you to know God more. Because there's something important to that. Paul's not just writing to write. He has a purpose behind it. He does not want us to be ignorant of God. How well do you know him? Listen, how, how well you know him is often revealed by how you talk about him. What you do for him. You ever met somebody with a really intense hobby? I mean, and I, I've seen, I mean, I've seen hobbies, whether it's, it's people who quilt or people who, who collect books or people who, um, I, I just remember there was this one group, they were in, this was in a church that we had years ago, and they, they clogged, which I didn't even know what clogging was at the time and finally learned. I mean, it's just, there's all these weird hobbies. I mean, you drive along and, and you see about people's pictures of dogs, you know, I love my dog, and I love my fish, and I love my cat, and um, I don't love your cat. I mean, there's just all these hobbies, and, and when people talk about their hobbies, they give descriptions, they give details, they, they, they share expressions of joy over their hobby. Talk to somebody who loves golf. Talk to me. I can tell you about golf. I can give you the history of golf. I can explain the, the nuances of golf. I can tell you what not to do on a golf course. I can tell you why I wouldn't take you on a golf course. I mean, there's a lot of things I can tell you about golf. And they, I can tell you about the books on golf I've read, the magazines on golf I, I've read. I mean, I just, that's one of my hobbies. That's one of the things I love. There's no doubt in my mind that you would know that I really love golf. What does that look like with God? How do you talk about God? What do you express about the Lord? The more you know Him, the more you'll talk about Him. The more you come to know Him, the deeper your intimacy with him, the deeper your fellowship with him. That's what Paul wants. Paul, Paul prays that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That you might have a knowledge, having the eyes of your heart open, that you would have a knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's how intense this is to Paul. It's just one description after another. I want your eyes open. I want your hearts open to a knowledge of God. And this, in verse 17, is why Paul prays that God, through His Spirit, would give us eyes, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know Him. Not just know about Him. William Wilberforce, who was a contemporary, he was, uh, he was pastored by John Newton. He was really the man who was responsible for seeing the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom. And he served in Parliament. He was uh, a wonderful, godly man. Uh, Newton just, Newton was a father to him. 
uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, but who's a wonderful pastor. Well, William Wilberforce's best friend was a man named William Pitt, who we get Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from. William Pitt was a member of parliament as well, and he was a contemporary, a, a best friend of, of Wilberforce, and he was also a brilliant man. He was far more intellectual, Wilberforce writes, than, than he was. William Pitt was just brilliant. And for years, Wilberforce tried to, tried to get William Pitt to go to church with him to listen to this certain speaker, because this certain speaker just proclaimed the wonderful truths of the gospel. And so time and again, year after year, Wilberforce would invite William Pitt to go to church with him. And William Pitt, at the last moment, would always come up with an excuse. And finally, one day, Pitt agrees to go to church, and he does. And Wilberforce is sitting there, and he's just soaking in the glorious truths of the gospel, just verse after verse, statement after statement. And he's just insight after insight. He's listening to his favorite preacher speak, and, and this, his heart is getting filled. And afterwards, he turns to William Pitt, and Pitt just looks at him and says, I didn't understand a word he said. Not a word. It's because his eyes were not enlightened. It's because he had not been given a spirit of wisdom and revelation into who Jesus Christ is. And that's what Paul is praying here for us. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul not only wants us to pray prayers of thanksgiving to God. He wants us to petition God. And specifically, he wants us to petition God. God, please give me wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of you. Lord, if you answer any prayer today, Lord, will you help me know you more? That's what I want, Lord. That's my petition. I want to know you more. Paul desires that we have real fellowship with God. And he believes that God will answer a prayer like that. I want us to have real fellowship with God. Whether it is something you are physically suffering through or fear that you are battling that we prayed for this morning or discouragement, you struggle with anger, you struggle with depression, or you just battle the daily life and the pressures of this world, what's going to get you through? I, I believe it's a knowledge of God. It's knowing God. It's knowing that you can draw under the shadow of his wings. It's having this intimacy, this fellowship with God. It's knowing God. It's not knowing about God. This, this group of people right here has been extremely well taught throughout the years. You've all read systematic theology. 
You've read book after book that rightly so was put in your hands to expand your understanding of who God is. You have a knowledge of God, no doubt. If you're new to the faith, I'm sure there's, there's much growth to be had. And if you're old to the faith, there's still much growth to be had. But Paul wants us to petition God that we might know him. That our faith is evidenced. Our faith is evidenced by an intimacy with God. Not just a love for the saints, but a love for the Savior. That we know him. <clears throat> and he tells us that it, he gives it to us really more specifically in three ways. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What, what is the hope of our calling? That's the first thing that Paul wants us to know. What is the hope of your calling? What are you hoping, what are you hoping for? What gives you assurance? If you've, if you've been saved, if you've been called, you've been saved to a purpose. What is the hope of your calling? What do you hope for? Do you hope for something more than a better job, a better house, a better car, better health, better relationships? Do you hope for something more than that? What is the hope of your calling? Yeah, it's the hope of your eternal future, is that's what it is. It's the hope to which God has laid before you this one day, new heaven and new earth, this eternity with the Savior. That's the hope that he's calling to you. It's a life forever in God's presence. That's the hope he's calling you to. He said, if you want to know me, know about the hope I'm calling you to. Rehearse that. Rehearse that. It's just simply eternal life. It's the anticipation of one day being presented to God by Jesus Christ is holy and blameless. That's what you're hoping for. That's what you're hoping for. But brothers and sisters, it's not, it's not a, I prayed the prayer and that's, and, and I've got it. Paul says there's more. He says pray that you would have Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart, would be enlightened to what this hope is. The hope of the calling that God has placed upon your life. And secondly, he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? That's another thing you should be asking God for. God, help me to understand what the riches of this inheritance are in Christ. That we are God's inheritance. Paul is saying, you are God's inheritance. He's not primarily talking about our inheritance, what we've been given, but he's talking about us being that inheritance. We are those whom the Father has given to the Son. We were given to Jesus as a gift by the Father. That's the inheritance being spoken of here. We've been chosen in Christ, it says in verse 4. Of chapter 1, not because we were intrinsically worthy, 
but because we were in Christ. God sees us as His valued, rich inheritance. Did you ever read in the paper or did you ever watch a movie where somebody dies and millions, billions are left and all the family members flock like bees to honey to claim their share. And then the war begins. Everybody's fighting and claiming they have the original will and, and they're fighting over this inheritance. Jesus fought for his inheritance. And he won that inheritance by his death on the cross. That's us. That's the riches of his glorious inheritance. I mean, that, that, alo that alone is a reason to seek God. And then finally, what is the immeasurable great power toward us who believe? Paul is not praying that we would have more power, but that we would come to know the greatness of God's power in us. God is already at work in us. And, and I, I do believe this power does refer to our future resurrection, but primarily it's, it's power to, to live out this Christian life. What is the immeasurable great power? What is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? I mean, Paul just can't get enough to describe how powerful this power is, and it's God in you, working in you, working through you for a very specific purpose. God's power is working in us now to transform us for His glory. God's power is working in us now to free us from the remaining sin that we battle. I don't know what, what sins that you face. We all do. Remaining sin is real. And it confronts us every day. And Paul said there is power to face and to battle this remaining sin, to overcome this remaining sin. There's power. There's power to overcome a depression that you face. There's power to overcome the pain that you experience in physical suffering. There's power to overcome and to not give in and to not give up. There's power. God's power is in us now to fulfill His plans and purpose, which is what this passage is all about. That God wants us to have a knowledge of Him, to have a wisdom and a revelation of Him, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, to know what the hope of our calling is, to know about the rich inheritance as we are His glorious saints, and to know the great working of His mighty power in us, that He would be able to be the church, the head of the church among us, that, that He will fill all in all, that He has put all things under His feet, that He is in rule and authority over all things, and that His church in this time would fulfill the purpose that God had called it to. This church cannot it will not be able to fulfill what God has called it to be if we do not know God. I, I'm glad we're together as a church. You, you'll never know the deep privilege it was for Marilyn and I to move up here to be a part of you 
and to be a part of this family and to see this family come together, to see this family united together, to see this family, especially in a season that was so difficult, have, have a, a soothing balm of, of fellowship bringing them together. But brothers and sisters, that's, that was not the ultimate reason why I came. And it's not the ultimate reason why I stay. I stay so that you will know God in such a way that you will fulfill the purpose of God in this life. That this church, the body of Christ, this church who has Jesus as its head, would be all that God had called it to be. As he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want this church to be the fullness of Christ. The reason I want you to petition God in prayer, to have him give you wisdom, to give you a spirit of revelation, to open the eyes of your heart and enlighten your hearts is that you would know God so that you could be the fullness of God, of Jesus Christ on this earth. All for the glory of God. That, brothers and sisters, that is what brings us to a well done, good and faithful servant. That, brothers and sisters, is what brings us to glorious praise. That is what brings us, brothers and sisters, to this reason to remember in our prayers one another, to give thanks to God for one another. That's what Grace Church is about, my friends. That's why we exist. That is why we are here. That, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it dwells in us. It dwells in us. We can do this. We can know God. We can love one another. We can be just like the Ephesians. We can have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that others will see. And it will make a statement. We can be like the Ephesians and have love toward all the saints. But we've got to work at it. We've got to pray. Listen, do you remember in Revelation, I think it's Revelation 2, Jesus brings an indictment against seven churches. Do you remember that? And one of the churches is the church at Ephesus. And do you remember the, the, the primary indictment that he brings against the church at Ephesus? He says, I have this one thing against you, that you left the love you had at first. And if you do not return, your lampstand will be removed. They were known for loving one another. And yet later on, Jesus indicts them for leaving the love they had at first. And sadly, there is no church in Ephesus today. Eventually, that church disintegrated. 
That city fell apart. There was no church there. We can drift. And let us be aware that it is not impossible for us to drift from that love. And so Paul tells us, petition God. Let us be a church that prays. Let us be a church that prays for one another. Let us be a church that prays for ourselves. Let us be a church that prays for the fullness of Christ among us. Let us be a church that sees Jesus as its head. Let us be a church that prays so that the glorious praise of God is lifted up. Let us be a church that speaks to God. Because God has promised when we speak, not only will He listen, but He will speak back. He will speak back to us. No matter what's going on, I want us to be that church. In the 1500s, there was a group in France called the Huguenots. They were the reformed church of their day. They, they took the teachings of, of John Calvin and, and they had their own French Reformation. Sadly, though, in the early days of this French Reformation, even as the, the movement grew supernaturally, 3,000 churches were added in a seven-year period. These Huguenots, as they were called. But the Catholic Church couldn't put up with it. And so serious, serious persecution arose. It was horrific what the Catholic Church, the state church, of France did to this reformed movement, this reformation movement. Edicts and imprisonment and massacres destroyed the movement. To be a Huguenot was a crime punishable by death. Their commitment to worship together as God's church, though, never wavered. They found places to worship in hiding. They made communion sets that could be ingeniously dismantled and hidden in books and sacks of flour. They made pulpits of wire and sheets that could be folded into piles of laundry. So if anybody showed up, they could quickly dismantle. They went so far as to make a pulpit, fashioning it in such a way that when it collapsed, it looked like a wine barrel. It was the transformer of the day. If they were caught worshiping together, the pastor was immediately executed in front of the congregation and the rest of the men in the congregation were sent to the galleys for the rest of their lives. Children were carted off to state schools separated from their parents and at times whole villages were tortured and destroyed because they gathered together to worship. for some reason, inexplicable, they felt it was so important to gather together to worship. They were willing to risk imprisonment, separation, death, 
martyrdom to gather together as the church of God. Today there is a small museum in France that exists bearing the names of those Huguenots who were martyred. These men and women never gave up. What sustained them? What did they what did what made them insist on meeting together as a church when the risks were so high? I believe it's they had a knowledge of God. They had a knowledge of God. And they wanted to be the fullness of Christ, church. Charles Spurgeon was a descendant of the Huguenots. Paul's prayer and petition is that we know God intimately in fellowship, that we might be a band of believers that insist on getting together no matter what. That's the church we want to be, brothers and sisters. So what's our application today? Our application is simply this. Can we pray? Can we petition God for one another that God would give each other a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God would enlighten the eyes of the hearts of every man and woman in this room, that they would know what the hope of His calling the glorious, rich inheritance in the saints and the great, immeasurable, mighty working power of God. Can we pray that for one another so that we can see the fullness of Christ in our church? Let's pray.